Hello, my name is Jeff Harker, and welcome to my Building Thinking Classrooms takeover of the Homegrown Podcast from KeepIndianaLearning.org. I'm taking over the entire month of May with my four-part series covering the four toolkits in the Building Thinking Classrooms framework by author Peter Lilliadal. Join me as I talk with teachers, administrators, and the author himself about how to create your own thinking classroom. Trying to fit in professional learning in the summer is tough when you're a teacher. That's why Keep Indiana Learning created the virtually different Summer Conference. Join us virtually for two amazing days, June 13th and 14th, from anywhere. Keynote speakers include Jennifer Gonzalez from Cult of Pedagogy, Justin, Mr. Fascinate Schaefer, dubbed Gen Z's Bill Nye the Science Guy, Ken Williams, author of Radical Equity, and Sarah Brown, author of Effective Universal Instruction, all for just $35. Join us live for these two amazing days of all virtual sessions and watch any recorded session for up to a full year. Learn more and register at keepindianalearning.org slash summer conference. And welcome to the first of our four-part series. I'm Jeff Harker with keepindianalearning.org, and I'm so excited to be getting this series off the ground, and I'm even more excited to be here with some very special guests. Uh, would the three of you please just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background and where you come from, um, and then we'll go from there. Hi, I'm Mary Auger. Um, I have been teaching since the late 80s, so you do the math on that, mostly sixth grade, but the last seven or eight years, I have taught seventh and eighth grade math at Hamilton Southeastern Schools at the intermediate junior high level, and I'm department chair there also. Thank you, Mary, so glad you're here. Stephanie, you go next. Hi, I'm Stephanie Wickey, and I teach math, mostly Algebra two and Algebra one, um, and also engineering at Whiteland Community High School. And I've been teaching for nine years, but this year I have also become an instructional coach. Oh, how exciting. All right, and last but certainly not least, Meredith. Hi, my name is Meredith Kalbfleisch, and this is my fourth year teaching seventh grade math at Fall Creek Valley Middle School. Um, I'm actually came late to being a teacher, so this is my fourth year overall, um, and I'm excited to be here. And we're excited that you're here too. All right, so let's get started. We're diving in today to toolkit number one in the Building Thinking Classrooms uh, framework that Peter Lilliedahl put together. And Toolkit 1 involves the first three chapters that talk about thinking tasks, visibly random groups, and vertical non-permanent surfaces. Of course, there's some other stuff thrown in, but those are the three big topics that we're going to be addressing today. One of the first things that I want to talk to you about is uh, this idea of change, because implementing building thinking classrooms is a change in how we deliver content. Um, Peter, in his book, recommends that we implement this first toolkit, these first three chapters, all at once. He concedes that you can do them one at a time, but his idea of forcing them all at once 
is that, and I'll quote him, that we need to, that change, excuse me, needs to be radical enough to overwhelm the system's ability to defend itself. Uh, and that defense comes in all kinds of shapes and forms, but mostly in our classrooms in terms of kids complaining and kids not doing something and things like that. And so he says that the change needs to be enough to overwhelm the system. And so my question to each of you to get us started today is uh, for you to tell us about your start. And did you feel that radical change in your own classrooms that Peter talks about in the book? Meredith, let's start with you on this one. So I think I was one of the first people on the bandwagon of changing my room to follow along with the book. Um, I read it uh, two summers ago. And so the first year I um, applied for grants to get uh, the vertical non-permanent whiteboards in my room. Um, and so that was how we had it set up. And I still had tables in my room, but it became very awkward walking around with the number of students I had um, to have the whiteboards, the chairs, the tables. And so over this past summer, I received permission from my principal to get rid of all the furniture in my room. And so what I did was I had the students sitting on the floor for the first couple of months. Um, it was a shock to their system when they came in. All of my students from last year, as they would walk by my door, would say like, Miss Kay, where's all your furniture? What happened? Um, so it was a shock to the system. And that was what I was trying to do. I did not want my classroom to look like everybody else's classroom. Um, we have finally graduated to stools. Um, so that we have both a sitting surface and we do have something we can put our Chromebook on if we need to. Um, but I still think having that room to move around and just having it not be like everybody else's classroom has really helped them get into a different mindset once they walk through my door. I remember walking into that classroom the first time and it was a shock to my system as well without all the desks. So. Um, so I'm glad to hear that that's working well for you. Um, but I know that taking the desks out is, and Peter mentions this in his book, that's not something that everybody can or is willing to do. That, that's an extreme, I think, in terms of building thinking classrooms, but I'm so excited that it is working for you. So um, Stephanie, how did you get started in all of this? And what, what's kind of your beginning story? I was aware of the research several years ago, and I wrote a grant to get whiteboards for my classroom. They were hung in January of 2020 by my custodians, so they didn't get used very much um, until two summers ago. I came across the book and I read that and went back to using them. And so for me, the change was a little bit different because since I read the book over the summer, I started implementing some of the practices from day one, and it was, this is just how my classroom runs. Um, but I think that doing it from day one with random groups and with vertical non-permanent surfaces sent a clear message to my students that this class is going to run differently. And I love, we've kind of got a theme going here of, we want things to be different. We want it to feel different. Mary, is that kind of similar to your path? 
It, it's very similar. Um, this is my second year this year trying it. And my first year, I did do those three together, but I felt like three was way easier than 14 because there are 14 strategies. So um, I really jumped in with the starting out with non-curricular tasks. And I really love that. I don't think I did five in a row. I think he says do five, but I was nervous if I didn't start with the curriculum that I might lose time, but I already had whiteboards across my whole front um, wall of my room and my side wall. So I added a mobile um, whiteboard and I also tried the white books. So I put some of those with the command strips up, but we were 360 around the room um, working on those non-curricular tasks at first. And I really did love the idea that the kids have to see you do the visibly random grouping, or they'll think you put them in certain groups on purpose and put a leader here and a follower here. And so we did those three and it was a complete change. So. That's so exciting to hear about because it, it goes along with exactly what Peter's talking about in his book that we wanted, he wants our classrooms to really feel different than the other classrooms, you know? Uh, so I love all of that. Um, Mary, you mentioned thinking tasks and that's the first chapter. So let's start there. And uh, if you can expand on that, Mary, a little bit about kind of what is a thinking task? Um, what makes a task a thinking task? Because we give our students tasks all the time and things to do all the time and homework here and problems there. Um, so what makes it a thinking task? I think what makes it a thinking task is it's going to have different entry levels for the different um, ability levels that you have. It could have different pathways, like it could be solved in many different ways. There's not just one way to solve it. And there might not even be a concrete solution that you think would be the final answer. It might be a couple of different things might be the right answer, but tasks that really get the students to think about the different ways it could be solved, like the tax collector, I mean. We've probably all heard about the tax collector. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but that was one of the non-curricular tasks that we tried in the beginning. Yeah, Stephanie or Meredith, what would you add to that? How have you used those thinking tasks in your room? I think for me, one of the key things that I look for in a thinking task is the timing. Um, for me to consider it a thinking task, it has to be something I haven't already taught my students how to do most of it yet. There needs to be something there for them to experiment with. So that it's not just, if I'm hearing you right, uh, so that it's not just practice. Right. Very so good. kind of picking off, pig, a piggybacking off of her experiment, we do lots of exploration tasks in our classroom. So building off of like a sixth grade standard, how can we use that to turn, you know, addition of a number over and over again into multiplication of integers? We just went over that. So it's taking what they already know and having them look at it a different way. It's a great way to think of that. Um, where have you found these 
thinking tasks? Do you come up with them yourself? Do you find them in textbooks? Um, and how often does this thinking task take place? Well, I'll tell you our curriculum, we've been piloting a couple different curriculums this year and I haven't been totally in love with their thinking tasks to begin with. Um, kind of off topic, there was this book I read called Dear Citizen Math, and it said that um, they need to be real life for children, but just asking them, well, how long does it take you to drink a milkshake? Yes, that's real life, but it's not really relevant to their life. And so um, this author has a website that I go to, um, and a lot of times I'll pull one of his tasks to be our thinking task that's relevant to them. So there was one we did about um, grade point average. And so we had a whole talk about averaging grades and was it fair? And it was doing percent increase and decrease. So if you increased your grade, but still had an F, should you still get an F even though you had shown growth? And it was a really cool task that we worked through and got them thinking and talking. And then we were able to segue into what percent increase and decrease actually meant. Um, so I try to pull from a lot of those math people that people follow on Twitter, Instagram and stuff and go to their websites because they, they, they have some stellar ideas to start with. Relevancy I do the same. Is a big motivator. Yeah, Stephanie, go ahead. I, I do the same just looking for ideas online, but I also find myself writing a lot of my own sort of thin slices. I know that's chapter nine, but algebra one and algebra two just lend themselves so well to that slow incremental increase of adding a new step or a new idea here. I've also used some of the mathematic lessons that are available online um, to kind of get some of my lessons started. And I would add to um, what Stephanie said with the timing thing, like we use big ideas math and I like them because they start out with the activity before you teach the lesson. So it is putting the um, conceptual before the procedural. So sometimes it is about timing and they have pretty good tasks in there. But besides uh, the author's site who gives a lot of non-curricular um, tasks, I also use illustrative mathematics and I've used some Joe Bowler's things too. We did the painted cubes, the five by five painted cubes, like how many sides would have one face painted or two face or no faces. And that was fun to get into. But once I get into my curricular tasks, I really do believe it's like what Stephanie says, it's them doing the math first before I tell them how to do it. And I'm usually have good luck at finding something that I want to use. And speaking of getting them into these tasks, um, that's a great segue into chapter two. One of the big topics in chapter two is this idea of visibly random groups. Um, and so first of all, what, what's the importance there? What, what do we mean by visibly and why is that such a big deal? I think I already spoke on it once, but I think that when students find out that we're not in control and controlling the groups that they're being put in and we don't 
initially expect this person to be the follower and this person to be the leader. And we just say, you have to, I tell them in the real world, they're going to go to their shift and they have to work with everyone. So this is a chance to meet different people that you might not usually group up with, but it's just important for the kids to know that we don't have preconceived notions about the part that they're going to take in their role to work together. And I know that all of you are using visibly random groups in your classrooms, and there's lots and lots of different ways to do that. Um, how do you put your kids actually physically in those groups? Meredith, I know you use something a little um, different than most. So um, I thought the first year I, I used a deck of cards like he spoke about in the book. And so there was the aces group, twos, threes, and so on. Um, but I thought it was kind of boring. Kids couldn't really connect to it. So now all of my boards are labeled with Mario characters. So like Mario, Luigi, Yoshi. Um, and so then in a red solo cup, I have popsicle sticks that are listed with those different characters. And then the students just pick a stick and whoever has the same name as you, that's the board you get to go to. That's, that's great. Uh, I love that idea. Um, and how, what other outcomes or impact have you seen this have? I know, Mary, you spoke about how the kids can't make up why they're in that group. And believe me, they will make up some reason. Oh, you put me in this group because you don't like me or because of this or that. And they will make that up. Um, but what has been the impact of that on learning? Have you seen a measurable change in how kids are behaving and working in those groups? I've seen a few of my students uh, that were, would typically be quiet and not really participate during traditional seat work would be totally engaged and talking with their group members um, when we are in random groups and at the boards. And I actually noticed for the first time this semester um, some of the mathematic lessons that I use, I do those seated because they're on paper and then we might transition to the boards. And at the beginning, when I first tried uh, my first couple of those, I would just have them stay in their table groups that they were already in. And then I would randomize when they went to the boards for the second part of the lesson. And I started to notice after about two of those that we were struggling through them a little bit more. And so the third one I did, I randomized the groups right at the beginning in their seats for the mathematic lessons and it made an immediate difference in the way that they interacted with that task. That's amazing. I love to hear stories like that. Anybody else? I have been amazed at the level of math talk coming from them and how some of my students who might be the stronger one in the group are taking the time and the patience to explain it to a group member that may not be catching on. And then that student is able to be like, oh, I want the marker, I wanna try now. Like just them supporting each other has been fantastic and nothing that I have really seen in the classroom before. I spoke to a um, high school language arts teacher uh, a couple of weeks ago and he called it um, some sort of magic voodoo 
because it, he had seen such an immediate, like you talked about, Stephanie, such an immediate change in the level of discourse in his room. They were talking more, they were talking on point about the mathematics. And as you both mentioned, you know, people that were usually quiet or would not dream of sharing by raising their hand in class are suddenly coming out of their shells in the small group at the board. So um, I just thought that was a great way to describe this strategy of some sort of magic voodoo that, and he said, I've been teaching nine years. Why hasn't anybody told me about this? So I thought that was a great story. Um, compared, well, let's go on to the next chapter. Uh, and we've talked about it a little bit already and talk about the vertical non-permanent surfaces, because I know for me in my own professional development, I almost don't do any PD anymore without getting the participants up out of their seats, on the whiteboards, on the chart paper, in some way, shape, or fashion. I just, I love it. I think it's so effective. Um, but I want to know from you guys what impact you had in your classrooms with the vertical surfaces. Um, and there's there's so much to talk about here. So first of all, um, if you can, how did you, a couple of you talked about how you got your whiteboards. Um, I know I get that question a lot of, well, I don't have whiteboards in my room, so what can I do? Can a couple of you speak to that, please? Um, I did get the shower board laminate stuff. I'm not sure the technical name of it. And I got two half slices of that to further go around my room. And my husband came in and put the little screws in it. And so they're screwed into the wall. So um, that's really the only things I had to add other than the mobile um, whiteboards. But those whiteboards their advantage is if you're traveling or if you're doing PDs or moving from room to room that they travel easy, but they do work really, really well. It's just my seventh and eighth graders were too hard on them with even the reinforcement duct tapes, it would rip, but it's a, it's a good thing to use. If you don't have wipe boards, that's a good thing to have. To and do. even though, even though I do have whiteboards, I don't have enough wall space to have enough whiteboards, so I also use the windows in my room. Oh, that's a clever idea. I love that. I love that. Meredith, I know you got a grant. Was that a grant through your township or was it outside the school district? Um, the first group of whiteboards I got through Donors Choose, I had some really um, generous donors because it was about $900 worth of whiteboards. And then um, I had a second set of five that I did get through a grant through Lawrence Township, whatever the LTFS, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of letters, whatever their foundation is. Um, I was able to get a grant from them to get more whiteboards as well, so. I've even heard of teachers taking um like uh, saran wrap or plastic wrap and then making like a duct tape border around it on a flat surface and making whiteboards out of that. 
Uh, I've seen teachers use their desks as whiteboards. I know that's not a vertical surface, but at least it gets them upstanding up out of their seats. Um, so yeah, so be creative, be creative. Um, why, and this is not an easy question to answer, I think, but why non-permanent? I know he calls them VNPS, vertical non-permanent surfaces. Is there a reason for the non-permanent piece? Because I know in my PD, I walk into classrooms all the time that don't have whiteboards. So we put up chart paper um, that is vertical, but not non-permanent. And so I wondered if any of you picked up on that in the in your reading. I don't know if I picked up on it in the reading, but I know my kids are more comfortable knowing that if they catch a mistake, they can just be like, erase that real quick and fix it. And it's not just out there for everybody to keep staring at. So, so does that, is it a confidence builder then maybe? For my students, definitely. I agree. I think we as adults are more confident in what we know and we're more willing to take risks because we are with our peers a lot of times. And, and I think for students that erasability is absolutely key. That's interesting to me, that's great. So it almost becomes a, not physical safety, but an emotional safety net for them. For those kids who, you know, don't like to raise their hand and don't like, because they don't want to be wrong, right? We've all got right. those kids in our classrooms. They don't And want I think to be even, wrong. even when it's not a confidence issue, it's math and we make even arithmetic mistakes in math. Even those of us who have been doing math on a long time and would consider ourselves good at it, it's normal to make mistakes and it's easier to erase them on something that's non-permanent. As you look back over this journey so far, um, and I know your journeys are not over by any means, but as you look back over your journey so far, how long would you say it took for, your, for you to see kind of a, a real change in your classroom, whether it's with the students or your teaching or, you know, what are some of those big changes that you've seen just in the short time you've been doing this? I caught a couple really neat things happening when I was video recording them doing their, at the whiteboards, doing their thinking task. And I hadn't told the kids about it, but it happened um, without prompting, we had knowledge mobility and we were sharing between groups. And sometimes we did have to stop the whole like competitive or I'll get it first. So we had to learn that because there's a lot of competition in solving problems and getting it first. But I did catch kiddos sharing across groups and it helped me to explain to the kids that the person in the smartest person in the room is the room. We're all working together. And if you're stuck, you can look at a group beside you and see how they did it. And they might be doing it a different way, but it might prompt you to have another solution. So we're learning to share that knowledge. So then it doesn't all have to come from the teacher. So that has been really cool. Thank you for that. And I love that idea of knowledge mobility. I know that's a term that Peter uses in his book. Um, Stephanie or Meredith, what would you add to that about 
the changes you've seen and how quickly it came about? I'd say for me, there was definitely some hesitation in the beginning. Um, we did start with the non-curricular tasks, which they really liked, but then there was lots of pushback against the random when we first random groupings when we first started being standing up, you know, they're they're seventh graders. Oh, my legs hurt. I can't stand this whole time. <laughs> um, but I'd say probably within the first four weeks, like they realized I was not going to back down, that this was really how class was going to go. And so they got on board with it. So that's great. And I know sometimes as adults, I work with a lot of adults now, and we're almost just as bad as the kids about, oh, we do something once or twice, and if it doesn't work perfect, we'll abandon it pretty quick. So to hear you say that if you just stick with it, that they'll get on board is great. Thank you. Stephanie, what did you want to dive in there with? I think once I started it doing consistently, it was probably just a few weeks before I started noticing significant differences in the way my students were interacting with the tasks. Um, there was a specific day a couple of months in where for the first time in my entire teaching career, I saw my students like actually taking risks and being willing to move beyond there's one set way of doing this. I had a group make up their own example and the example was wrong. They had written natural logs of six equals eight, which isn't true. But I waited to approach their board to see what they were going to do. And it turned out they knew it was wrong. And they were looking at the way that that equation was written to convert back and forth between log and exponential form. And I have never had students, number one, be willing to write something down they knew was wrong. Number two, make use of it anyway. And number three, just go in that completely different direction from what they had seen before. That's amazing. And you know, and I hear those kind of stories from teachers all over that are using this building thinking classrooms. Um, and it sounds like all of you were describing, if, if I can come full circle, you were describing these changes that really overwhelm the system, right? If, if we just do them a little here and a little there or once a week or one, you know, try it and then don't do it for a couple of weeks and try it again, then the system is able to defend itself, right? They can complain their way out of it. And so they don't have to do it. If I complain enough, the teacher will stop doing it. Um, but your stick to is what allowed the system to become overwhelmed and it could not defend itself. And so change happened. Um, and so I love that. Um, as we get towards the end of our time, um, I want us to think forward now um, with a couple of questions. First, what's next for you? And I want to hear from each one of you on this. What's next in your building thinking classrooms journey? Uh, what's coming up, whether it's coming up later this year or maybe even next fall, something that you want to start the year with differently? Um, so what's coming up? And if you have any little kernels of advice for teachers that are just starting out um, in, in their journey, they've got the book, they've read it, uh, or they're gonna read it this summer, um, what advice would you give to them? Um, 
as they start out. So uh, Stephanie, let's start with you. What's next? I think for me, I'm just looking forward to refining some of the later practices, um, like the the note making. I switched from Algebra 2 to Algebra 1 this year. And so finding ways to adapt the note making and transfer that responsibility back to my students with a different maturity level. Uh, same thing with the knowledge mobility. Working on that has just been different for me this year because I'm working with a grade level I haven't worked with in a while. Um, so I'm just really looking forward to refining some of those later practices. Great. Great. Mary, what about you? Um, I, too, want to try to start incorporating some of the last chapters, um, what I choose to evaluate and how I use my formative assessments, and then the biggie, the grading, because a lot of the things that the author put in the book about grading is what I really, really believe in, and it has to do with getting rid of letter grades and and some of the ways that he has written down for us to do is, is really, really interesting to me. And I'd like to get that last assessment part of the book going. I'm gonna be very curious to hear about how that grading practices goes. Grading, I've always said grading is akin to religion for teachers. You know, it's one of those last things we hold on to. Um, so that'll be really curious to, to hear about. Meredith, what about you? What's coming up for you? So what I really need to focus on, and I can't remember the exact verbiage from the book, is you want your kids to be in that flow. You don't want them to be rushing through too fast or struggling too fast. And so I find that um, sometimes I do have kids that finish and I can't move on. So I have started printing everything off so they, they trade cards. But then again, I struggle with that whole having an answer key to have them come check. And so generally it's me walking around and talking to them about it. So I just haven't been religious about that piece. So I want to dive and try to, to get more of the essence of what he talks about in that piece to try to make it flow better for me and everybody else. It sounds like you've got a ton of wonderful things happening, but at the same time, we need to be realistic about it. It's not as easy as just putting some whiteboards up and saying go, right? So, so what advice do you have in our, in our last minutes here? What advice do you have for somebody just starting out? What kernel of wisdom would you share with them? Stephanie? Don't give up on it because there are days that will be hard, but it's definitely worth it. But at the same time, be mindful to not bite off more than you can chew. Um, I read the book in its entirety over the summer. So I knew what all the practices were going into that fall, but it's never realistic to implement all of those. And Peter talks about that in the book, but at the same time, there is that temptation of oh, all of these sound like really good things. And I want to do them as soon as possible in my classroom because they're just so awesome. And one of the questions that I had going into that fall was, well, what do I do about the practices that I'm not ready to implement? That if I'm going to take a manageable bite of changing my teaching practices and I'm gonna focus on these three for right now, 
what do I do about notes? Because I now know that me just giving out notes is not necessarily the most effective thing I could do, but what do I do in the meantime till I'm ready to get to, I don't remember what chapter that is. And so just kind of being willing to tweak things and go with the flow and not try to change it all at once, all at once, even as tempting it might be. Thank you. Mary, what about you? I would say the same. Um, those first three strategies are good to snatch onto and, and try those. And 14 is overwhelming and don't do too much. But I think if you find somebody like a, um, a cohort person that might be trying it too, just an accountability partner that you can check in with. I'm fortunate enough to have a instructional coach here who has read the book and she helps me a lot, Amy Kinnear. So I have somebody to check in with to keep me going. Um, but yeah, I would say don't bite off too much. And Peter does have like micro moves and macro moves. So you can try some of the small things to tweak to get better. So yeah, that would be my advice. Good advice to give. Meredith, finish this out. Um, I honestly, I would probably, if I wanted to do all three, I would probably focus though, to begin with on the random grouping, since kids are so not used to that and get them used to playing in different roles. Um, just because I think that's half the battle right there, getting them used to not working with their friends, not working with the people that they know. Um, and then you can start working in, all right, now we're ready to go work at a whiteboard. Now we're ready to take that task we were working on to the whiteboard. So I would definitely, if I started anywhere, would start with the random grouping. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us today. Lots of good advice, lots of good stories to tell. Uh, I love that. This is just the beginning of our four-part series. We've got toolkit number two coming up, um, which those toolkits, you know, you all mentioned about not taking too big a chunk. Those toolkits are a great way to organize your implementation as well. Work on just toolkit number one and get that down and then work on toolkit number two. So join us next week for uh, toolkit number two. And I thank you again for your time today. Um, don't forget to go to keepindianalearning.org and check out our website where you can sign up to uh, join us this summer for our Building Thinking Classrooms Conference in Franklin, Indiana, June 29th and 30th. Peter Lilliedahl will be our special guest those two days. And be sure to keep listening to our Homegrown podcast. We've got three more episodes and Peter's going to be our guest for our fourth episode to wrap everything up and put a nice bow on it for us. So thank you again, ladies, and we will see you next time on the Homegrown Podcast. Once again, my name is Jeff Harker, and you've been listening to the Building Thinking Classrooms takeover of the Homegrown Podcast from KeepIndianaLearning.org. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out our website for past and future episodes, along with a host of other learning opportunities. Are you looking to shake up your classroom instructional practices and get your students really thinking? The Building Thinking Classrooms Conference is June 29 and 30th. Don't miss your chance to work alongside author Peter Lilliudal 
along with Building Thinking Classrooms facilitators and other educators from across the country who are working to disrupt the traditional classroom environment and start making students into thinkers. Find out more at keepindianalearning.org slash btcc.